We're going to be looking at a larger portion this morning of Luke 18, thinking through this, this passage from verse 15 through verse 30 of Luke chapter 18. And uh, we might start this morning by reading through that passage of Scripture and then having a word of prayer before we uh, enter into it. So Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, says, I tell you, uh, sorry, where am I? Verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brother or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your blessing your encouragement in it, that we might see and understand your truth and be drawn more closely to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage holds a little bit of an emotional sway over me, I must admit. The last time I preached this text or used this text in a sermon was five years ago, almost five years ago. It was during a short series we were doing in church where uh, people had asked questions and wanted to know some answers to various different things. And uh, one of the questions that was asked was, what happens to children that die young? And this was the text we used. I preached through this. Two weeks later, Hudson was taken from us. Uh, So it has a little bit of emotional pull on me. It was part of God's preparation for us. Uh, that sermon and, and other things that, that went on. But I found myself yesterday, uh, while many of you were, were boot scooting, I found myself yesterday uh, with uh, doing similar things to what I did with Hudson, sitting in front of the TV watching monster trucks. Uh, this reminded me of the great goodness of our God, because now I'm still sitting with my son watching monster trucks and enjoying it together. There is pain in these things, but there is also God's goodness to be seen through difficulty. 
But as we come to this passage today, this passage isn't directly related to the death of children. We used it as part of a larger uh, picture as we looked through that topic through Scripture. But the passage we read here, particularly the first part, isn't really about the death of children, and the age here really doesn't uh, come into the, the point of the passage either, uh, whether it's a, a child or whatever. It's more about the childlike qualities, the qualities of childlikeness that Jesus draws out here in these first few verses and these examples. He uses the children as an example of a much bigger picture, a bigger truth about faith and about salvation. The question which is arising through all of this, which Jesus has been talking about over these last few uh, chapters here, has been who will enter the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? And so in the past few weeks, well, I guess really it's extended over the past month or so, we've, we've seen things that Jesus has talked about, about what the kingdom is. We've talked about the nature of the kingdom as Jesus has showed us through it. And in the last two weeks, we've looked at Jesus explain who will not enter the kingdom. And so the question then arises to bring us this full body together is if there, we know who will not be in the kingdom, then who will be in the kingdom of God? Who can have eternal life? And that's what these two portions we're going to look at this morning, which we read this morning, talk about. As we, uh, we come to this, the key thought and the key uh, theme of these passages rises out of the question of verse 18 of our text. So the, it begins, well, firstly, in verse 16, Jesus tells us, for of such is the kingdom of God. So here, who can be part of the kingdom of God? Who can have eternal life? Those who have this childlike faith quality. But then in verse 18, we see a, a man come to him with a question. And the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the key to this whole passage. From the, the uh, examples through the children through to this uh, rich young ruler, this is it. So we're going to look here and answer this question uh, with three statements and three thoughts as we go through. So this is not uh, rocket science this morning. This is straightforward. This is, this is simply to answer the question that Jesus gives us here how to have eternal life. We're going to answer it in three parts this morning. Firstly, how do we have eternal life? By faith in God. Secondly, by the grace of God. And thirdly, by the power of God. So let's start at the beginning there, how to have eternal life. Firstly, we have eternal life by faith in God. By faith in God. This idea and this concept of who is going to enter into the kingdom of God is illustrated here. This event which comes uh, about takes place and Jesus uses it as an opportunity to illustrate, to teach us something here. As we see in verse 15, it says, Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. As we look here at the beginning, the first thing that we notice as we continue through this and, and consider it, one is that God cares for the children. God cares for the children. The people, probably the mothers, are bringing their, their young babies here to Jesus. It wasn't uncommon in the time for mothers to, to bring their babies to a rabbi and have that rabbi bless their child or speak a blessing on the child. In the years that we've been here, I think we've only done really one baby dedication uh, in that, and it wasn't really a baby dedication, it was more of a, a parent-family dedication. 
uh, at the time. That's really more what it is designed to be. But here, as these women come and they bring their, their babies to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and, and bless them, the disciples turn them away. And it's not a gentle turning away. It's not like, you know, not, not right now, maybe come back later. It says they rebuked them. So they were, they, they were quite forceful in the way they told them to leave. Go away. You're not welcome here. Don't bring your children here. They're getting in the way. Now, why, why would they rebuke them? Why would they send them away like this with this sort of attitude? Well, at the time, the, the Jews saw really no value in children in worship. They couldn't bring anything to worship. They had no worship to offer. They really had no value when it came to, to worship and the gathering of the community to worship. And as part of that, they may have even assumed here that because these children had no value in worship, but there were people gathered there that Jesus was talking to, that maybe having the children there was a waste of time and Jesus had better things to do. There were more important people to talk to, more important topics to address along here. And we all know uh, children can be distracting. My children are distracting when it comes to, to worship sometimes in, in, in church. That's just the way it is. And sometimes you know, we look and say, well, what can they offer in worship? Now, don't get me wrong. When, when I say here and we look here that the disciples are turning these people away and they're forceful in the way they do it, don't get me wrong. I don't mean that they are uh, denying them certain things. Their intent seems to be genuine. They genuinely seem to believe that they're doing the right thing by turning them away so that Jesus can focus on the more important things, or at least what they saw to be the more important things. Your children aren't ignored by God. Their, their worship isn't considered less, although it may seem different or odd to us in, in the way, or even unlearned, children can worship, and they don't have any less value to God. Rather, as we look here and we see the interaction that Jesus has here with the children, what we're brought to see is it's their weakness that draws Jesus' compassion. The fact that that the children are, are weak and unable, this is the biggest part of Jesus' illustration here. The biggest part of his compassion on them at this point is we see that Jesus calls the children to him. When he sees what's going on, he tells the disciples to stop and he calls the children to him. To interact with them. Two words are used here for the children. It says they brought the infants at the beginning. So they're bringing their their young babies, the the little ones. And then when Jesus calls the children, he says, let the children come to me. It's a word which has a broader meaning. So it's not just the babies. Now he's calling children who are the the toddlers and the the young kids. He's, He's opened it up to beyond just the infants to the children. He enjoys them. And as he calls them to him, he he touches them and he blesses them. All three of the Gospels that record this event say the same thing, that Jesus invites them in and he lays their hands on them and he, he blesses the children. And Mark tells us that he takes them up in his arms. So Jesus isn't keeping them at a distance, but he calls them in and, and he brings them in. And, and maybe you've seen the pictures in Sunday school and things and 
uh, or, or in, in books. And you see the picture of this. Uh, Jesus sits there and he has the children on his, uh, his legs and he's holding them there and they're, they're gathered around him. And, and while the, the illustrations may not be accurate in the way they depict Jesus or what happens, I think the idea is accurate. Because the Gospels tell us that Jesus picked them up in his arms and he called them to him closely. He had them gather around and he laid his hands on them and he, he blessed them. I wish that our society had the same care for children that God does. We live in a society which is ruthless towards children. The, the, the rate of abortions in our Western society keeps increasing at phenomenal rates. The way we treat so many children in our society is, is terrible. I wish we had a better view, a better understanding of children as God did as a society. He, he loves children and he calls them to himself. And that love, as we've talked before, that love extends even to those who are not long on this earth. As God calls those children to him because he cares for them. Some of the other things that we learn from Jesus in this regard are one that in his care for children, God calls us to teach them. Part of the way that God loves them is calling us to teach his ways, to seek his blessing on them. The, 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 the parents here who were bringing their children to Jesus, they had the right idea. We want God's blessing on our children. We have a great responsibility as parents. You know, I read a, a thing just the other day telling parents that they should not evangelize their children. You shouldn't tell your children they need to believe in, in Jesus or God or, or anything that matter. And that sounds great to some people, except for the reality is this. They're telling you not to evangelize your children, but they're very happy to evangelize your children. Everybody, and I mean everybody, wants to tell our children what to think, what to believe. Our government wants to. Our schools want to. Our neighbors want to. This church wants to. I want to. Everybody wants to tell our children what to believe. It's our duty as parents to lead that, to teach our children, and not to just leave them out to the influence of others. How do we lead them to God? We teach them God's way. We instruct them in the ways of God. But we don't just teach them by by telling them. We teach them by showing them, by setting an example, by living as an example before our children. They will learn God's value from you. That's how we all learn. Let them see you worship and enjoy it. Let them see you live it in your family. We teach them God's way. We show them And we love them. By that I mean we love them in the greatest biblical way. Every way that we can. That perhaps, and what I've just said there, perhaps focuses more on people like like me who have young children that we're, we're bringing up. But not only does God call us to teach them, God calls us to embrace them as a church. As a people of God, as a gathering of God, we're called to embrace the children. It's important for us to do that. Children aren't a nuisance in worship. Oh, sure, they can be. Uh, you know, they, can, they can make noise. My own son's making noise today and, and, and trouble. They, they make noise. 
and, and, and they can be troublesome and, and they can be distracting. We know that. But when I say that children are a nuisance in worship, what I mean is they're children. And we need to make sure that when children are here to worship, that we let them be. That we, un- that we encourage the parents who bring their children to say, it's okay that your children aren't completely silent. That they don't sit still. Man, my, my 10, my, I don't even know how old my children are anymore. My 11-year-old and my 9-year-old, they can't sit still. Uh, we're forever telling them to get back in their chairs at dinner time. But what we need as a people of God is to say and to show to the children and the parents of children that enter this congregation, it's okay. They are our children too. You know, my children think of you all as family. They talk of you all as family, as brothers and sisters and Sunday school and, and, and uncles and aunts and grandparents. You are part of their family. We need to, to help them. Help them know the words to the songs. You know, part of the reason why there are a few songs which you probably see we sing fairly regularly, and they're usually simple songs. And we put them, I do that because I know that the children can grasp those songs easily, and they know them, and they like them. And so that's one way that we can help the children worship. We sing some songs that they're familiar with that are easy for them to just sing. Help them find the passages to follow along with, even if they can't read and hold them there. Help them to, to understand what's going on. Encourage them to get involved where they can. You know, when I was 8, 9, and 10 years old, my job in church was before church, we had a, a little bus that ran around through the neighborhood picking up kids who wanted to come to Sunday school. My job, I opened the door. That was it. The guy who drove the bus said, you want to come with me and open the door? Sure. And you know, anybody can open a door. The people who got in the bus could open the door. But it made me feel part of it. It drew me in to the church. Help them find a place to minister and to be their part. This year, one of the focuses we have is in further developing our children's ministries in our Sunday school. Do you want to help? We always need help. So pray for the children here. And pray for their families. Jesus speaks here of the children because he's trying to illustrate for us here the childlike faith. There are a number of things which come out about the childlike faith that we can see here as we consider this. And the first thing is children are innocent. Well, you know, what we've talked about before, these, these few things we've just been mentioning, are not perhaps the most important part of the main point of the message Jesus uses this moment to teach us something about faith, to teach us some truth about faith. The point isn't that we're to be simple like children and not grow in depth. This has to do with the nature of saving faith. What is it in saving faith that is childlike? Children are innocent in that they are fundamentally trusting in their their nature their first inclination is to believe and, and to trust what they are told and their instructions. But this isn't about being naive and about blindly trusting because anybody, all of you who had children, know that children ask questions, constantly ask questions. So this isn't Jesus saying being like a child and just follow and do what you're saying. There is a curiosity in childhood 
in the innocence of childhood, which is good. But, you know, the difference between the way children ask questions and many adults ask questions is children ask questions because they genuinely want to know. They want to know what is true and what to follow and what to do. Children are innocent. Children are easily led. And by easily led, I mean this in the best way of that term, not in the way that we often think in that the, the simpleton way, where they're just easily led off into to things. It's not about being simple-minded, but that they're teachable. They're easily teachable. They want to follow. Uh, this, this week, my children went to Naturescape. It's a thing out in Kings Park. And uh, you can see here, I've got the, the three of them there climbing up one of those ladders. It goes up several stories and, and all. Of course, Anaya and Esther straight up, and Silas, where, well, wherever they go, he will follow. So he begins to, to climb up, and he's having fun up there because he wants to follow. He wants to do what they want to do. Well, they get up to the first platform, and uh, they're up there, and you can see there he's standing on the platform, perhaps, and there's this big hole there where the ladder comes through. Uh, Esther is jumping over the hole, back and forth over the hole, just jumping around, playing, doing what Esther does. Silas will do anything that Esther does. So Silas launches himself into the hole. Uh, Fortunately, Esther and Kirsten both have mummy-like reflexes and caught him so he didn't fall down the hole. But it illustrates for us a little bit about what I'm saying here. Children want to follow, and they see what we do, and they follow that. Just like we, we see here. And this is part of what the faith is that Jesus says when we have childlike faith. is It's, it's looking to God and it's seeing who God is and following. Understanding who he is and following. It is that childlike faith. But children are dependent. This is really the heart of Jesus' illustration here. That children are dependent. These infants, these children have no way of entering the kingdom on their own. So when Jesus says to him, bring the children to me because it's like these who are what make up the kingdom. But he kind of scratches their head and thinks, but how? They have nothing to offer the kingdom because this is what we've been talking about or what Jesus has been addressing all along, isn't it? The Pharisees thinking, I can earn my way in to the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to me. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom is for people like this who have nothing to offer who are completely dependent. Their place in the kingdom has nothing to do with their usefulness, but it has everything to do with God. Jesus' point here in this illustration with the children coming is this, that the kingdom is about dependence, not strength. To find your way into eternal life, to know what it is to have the life of God and salvation, it's not about your strength. It's not about what you do. It's not about how far you can carry yourself or how much you can do or how strong you think you are in this world. Eternal life is about dependence. It's about weakness, not strength. So we find eternal life. We have eternal life by faith in God. Secondly, we have eternal life by the grace of God. This is where the story continues. As this is taking place, a man comes to him and asks the question there in verse 18. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? As we unfold through this quickly in these last few minutes, one of we notice here in Jesus' answer, firstly, is this. 
what you do isn't good enough. So how do you get eternal life? Well, part of it is this. What you do is not good enough. He begins, of course, he approaches God and calls him good teacher, Jesus, and calls him good teacher. Jesus uses that salutation to begin the conversation. This, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. This is that God alone is good. Good in its purest sense. Good in its greatest sense, in its fullest sense. This young man who comes to Jesus, and although Luke doesn't tell us he's young, Matthew and Mark do, this young man seems genuine in his request. He approaches Jesus with great respect. He wants to know the answer, and and it seems to have a desire to follow most of perhaps what he would, would hear. But here Jesus uses that term good teacher to draw us a little further. The idea of good, as it's used here, is to talk about the nature of God, who he is in himself. And then he compares that idea that God is good to who we are, and if we are good or not. So the term good here is used in its moral sense. That is, it has to do with purity, with perfection. Please, Don't use this verse to try and say that you can't use good to describe people or things. Uh, It's okay. You can use the word good. In fact, I had one man come in one time after the service. He wasn't here for the service. He came in after the service and he was asking me about the church and about people here. I said, said, they're good people. He said, no, they're not. Only God is good. Uh, we talked for another minute or two and I said, thank you, I don't think you want to be here any longer uh, and told him not to come back because all he wanted to do was argue about things. It's okay to speak of people as good. What Jesus is doing here is talking about good in its greatest sense, in its moral sense. That is that God, in his very nature, is perfectly pure. He is good in the complete manner of speaking But Jesus uses this to point to God's perfection and his own as a result. In one statement, as Jesus pulled this out in verse 19 and 20, Jesus is going to cover all ten of the commandments in this one moment. So if we to think quickly about what the commandments are, they're basically broken up into two categories. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The last six have to do with our relationship with God with other people. Now, in his first statement where he talks about God being good, Jesus has basically summed up all the first four commandments. So he's talked about the nature of God there as God being good and summed up all of those first things about God in that one statement. And then as he continues there in verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother. So he gives uh, five The rest, but he hangs on to one, the last one. So he hasn't yet mentioned, do not covet, the last of the commandments. He's holding on to that one for a moment, for a reason, as he's summarizing what goes on here. Jesus is setting up the standard by beginning with God's perfection. And what we're coming to see here as we go through this is this. You can't just do good, you must be good good 
This is really what it all comes down to. When we talk about eternal life and having salvation, you can't just do good. You must be good. This young man is confident of his works, of his good life. He says, you know the commandments. And Jesus gives him a summary, essentially, of the first four and saying that he is good. And then the next five follow and he replies, done all that. I can confidently say I'm pretty good on on all those things, he says. But remember, Jesus is still holding on to one command. Why? We'll see that in just a moment. See, Jesus has already taught us in Sermon on the Mount and other places that the heart of the commandment is deeper than the surface. So it's not just don't murder, but it's further don't hate, don't be angry. It's not just uh, don't commit adultery, but don't lust in your heart. It goes further than just the surface of that. These are things Jesus already taught. God's expectations aren't just about doing good and doing the perfect thing and doing the right thing, but actually being good. That's what it really gets down to. The law was there to show us that God is good and I am not. That's what the law showed us. Jesus shows us here that, in fact, he is enough. Jesus is enough. And so he asked this young man to consider what he loves. This is why Jesus holds on to the last commandment. Because he's going to draw it out from this young man himself. He says to him, give away everything you have and follow me. Knowing that the young man was rich and that he had much to give away... Jesus' challenge here was a question about what the man loves. Giving away things was not going to save him. It was a question about what do you love? What is it that you really want? What do you want, God or riches? See, here, he's allowed the man to broad brush over most of the commandments. But then he hones in on one where he knows we can get to the real heart of the matter. What do you really love? Where is your heart? What is it that you want more than anything? Do you want eternal life more than anything? Do you want God more than anything? And it turns out this young man wants his riches more than he wants God. Which is an answer to the question that far too many people give. Most of us want something more than we want God. That is what's going to keep us out of eternal life. We don't understand the goodness of God. See, as that young man stood there and he had to contemplate this question, do I really want to give away everything I have to have Jesus? In the moment when he contemplates that question, what he did not understand was the great goodness of God. He saw more goodness in what he had than what he saw in God. Too many, that's the problem. We don't think God is satisfying. We don't think he's enough to give up our life for. We find eternal life by faith we find eternal life by grace and we find eternal life by the power of god 
Verse 24, when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible to save yourself. Impossible. Now, it's hard to do good. Right? We can do good things, and we do. We, everybody does good things. We, we do good things, but it's hard to do good things. We don't do it consistently, but it's hard to do good things. We've all fallen to anger or hate or, or lust for people or things or lying as part of our, our nature, and even though we may fight it. It's hard to do good, but it is impossible to be good. This, we can do good things. On the surface, we can do good things and, and see that things are good, but it is impossible for us, by our nature, to be good, to be perfect in the great sense that God says we need to be. Perfection is required not just in action, but in heart, being. Jesus gives an illustration. The illustration is designed to be ridiculous. So I want to show you the ridiculousness of it. I brought the biggest needle I have. This is my leather needle. Uh, so it's the biggest needle I've got. It's got you know, a nice big hole there. I don't have a camel at home, but I do have a giraffe. This is the biggest giraffe I could find at home. Now, this is simply to illustrate to you it's ridiculous because Jesus' example is ridiculous. I tried, and, and I mean that honestly. I, I tried so that I could tell you in truthfulness that I tried. I tried to get this camel through this eye of this needle. And no matter how much I tried, I, could not, I couldn't even get the tail through. Because it's a ridiculous thing. It's not going to fit because you're thinking, why would you try? You, it's not. But Jesus' example is, is, is a needle and not a toy giraffe, but an actual camel. The idea is meant to be ridiculous. Because it's impossible. Can't be done. You cannot find your way to eternal life by the things you do. You cannot find your way to eternal life on your own. It is as ridiculous as trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. Insane. It cannot be done. And while it is impossible to save yourself, God can save you. This is where that great quote comes from that we all love, isn't it? The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. What does he mean? You know, he's not just meaning any, of course, anything is good for God, but here he's saying it is impossible for you to find eternal life on your own. But I'm God, I can do it. I can give you eternal life. I can provide eternal life. The people ask uh, an important question because Jesus says, it's impossible, verse 26, and those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Fair question, right? Because Jesus has spent all this time saying, you can't do it. And they're looking at a rich man. In their eyes, richness and wealth was a sign of God's uh, blessing. And so they're looking and saying, well, if he can't get into heaven, who can? Jesus says, no one. No one on their own. We're completely helpless. We are helpless. 
But God is powerful. He is perfect in every way. He is able to live perfectly. Our part then is not to prove our worth to God, but to depend on His perfection. Jesus is worth it. As Jesus goes through this, and He brings us to to, to verse, we come to verse 28, and Peter, as only Peter can, takes this in a different direction. He says, See, we have left all and followed you. So Peter says, he couldn't do it. The rich kid couldn't do it, but we did. We left it all and we followed you. We've got nothing. We've given it all to you. Give God your life. This is the life of repentance. This is what Peter is is showing. He says, that young man could not give his life away to God. And Peter says, we saw you was worth it. We gave it all away. We're following you. This is the life of repentance, turning from trusting self to trusting Jesus and following him. It's a life of discipleship which needs Jesus for the rest of it. What are you hanging on to? What does your heart desire more than God? More than eternal life? Jesus says to Peter, who says, we left it all. Jesus replies to him and says, you will find more blessing than you can possibly imagine. Surely, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brother or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus assures us that following him is worth it. He is worth giving your everything to. He is worth depending on him, saying, I have nothing. I will give it all for you. In him you will find treasure forevermore. The way to find absolute satisfaction is Jesus. In any part of your life, even beyond your salvation, you won't gain eternal life by your own good deeds. They can never be enough, ever. You find eternal life by trusting Jesus, by being like a child who has nothing to offer, nothing to give, purely dependence. Will that be you today? Will you let go of your self-sufficiency to depend on God? Will you let go of what is holding your heart to find a far greater goodness in God. Believer, God is worth giving your all for. Everything. Don't turn back. Don't long for what the world has to offer or may offer. You pursue Christ. Enjoy Him. What are you hanging on to in this life that is hindering you from following Jesus? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your example, for your truth in Scripture as you take example and illustration and you teach us. Lord, I know for, for, for us, as we sit here, we profess to believe Jesus Christ as Savior. We are our believers. And so perhaps the idea as we sit and think this morning 
But the need for eternal life and dependence is one that is in our past. But certainly what is in our present and our future is the continued need to depend. To not pretend that we are strong enough, good enough, or great enough to do what needs to be done, but that we need you. We need you to be our everything. We thank you for these lessons. We pray that you would draw us, teach us, strengthen us, and encourage us. Dear God, we pray for the children of this church, and we ask for your blessing on them. Lord, let the the good news of the gospel and of your word, as they hear it in song and in story and in Bible, Lord, let it sink in that they might know the truth of Jesus Christ, that they might find you to be what they need and follow you for their life. We pray for the parents, that you would bless and guide us as we try and teach and guide our children in the faith. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.